welcome to the Peaceful World Schooling Podcast, featuring your host, Angela Harders. We're committed to cultivating a peaceful world beginning right in our own hearts and homes. Together, we believe that the world is our biggest and best classroom, and the people and places in it are our greatest teachers. So I invite you to join me on the adventure of a lifetime, beginning with a conversation that can change the world. Today's episode of the Peaceful World Schooling Podcast is brought to you by the Reading and Typing Course, a revolutionary online typing program that teaches touch typing through spelling and phonics patterns. This program is perfect for children six and up, and it works great for adults too. So if you would like to sign up for the Reading and Typing Course and learn how to save time, money, and stress by learning how to type quickly, just click the link below in the description or go to www.peacefulworldschoolers.com downloads. Use the promo code PWP20 for a 20% discount. Hello, and welcome to the Peaceful World Schooling Podcast, where we are committed to cultivating a peaceful world beginning right in our own hearts and homes. My name is Angela Harders, and I'm a special education teacher, the author of Gospel-Based Parenting and the Crunchy Kids series, and a proud world schooling mother to two incredible children, Sophia, who's six, seven, and Benjamin, who is three. Today on the Peaceful World Schooling Podcast, I have the privilege and honor of introducing you to Anna Granta. Anna is an expert in supporting professional neurodivergent adults at work to become more confident and skilled at the things that matter to them most. Thank you so much for joining us today as we have a conversation that can change the world. Thank you, Anna, for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. So as we get started today, can you share with us a little bit about you, your family and your story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, as you said, I'm a coach for neurodivergent adults. I'm neurodivergent myself. I have ADHD and dyslexia. Um, my dyslexia was picked up at school, but my ADHD was not. And uh, I think for, for many women, um, often ADHD is not picked up at school. Um, for my family, I have two children, um, two sons. Um, I'm pretty sure that my eldest is neurodivergent and perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm wondering how, how did you come to be diagnosed with dyslexia while you're, while you were at school? How did you know you had dyslexia? Right. Um, so it was, it was, um, I want to say chance, maybe it's not a chance, good, good fortune of, of some kind um, that my teacher in, I think it was year three, had a close family member who was dyslexic. So although she hadn't been trained in that kind of thing, as you know, teachers of that era usually weren't, she had that personal knowledge to, to recognize it in me. And so she then sent me for the, the testing and so on. Wow, that's wonderful. Um, it's so nice that you were able to have someone who was knowledgeable about dyslexia because I found that a lot more people have dyslexia than I think that they're even aware of because it's just not something that we really talk about a lot. Um, and I know working in special education, I would observe that a lot of students really had things that I would observe as dyslexia. Um, and I was getting them in high school and they hadn't even been like diagnosed or anything before then. Um, so what are, what would you say were some of the signs for someone who's listening and is not familiar with dyslexia? How would someone know that they, that either they had dyslexia or perhaps that their child could be struggling with dyslexia? Right. Um, so I think what she noticed with me was that my spelling was totally atrocious um, and, and my handwriting as well. Um, but so um, many children with dyslexia will struggle with learning to read. Um, it's, but dyslexic children can learn to read. And actually, I loved reading. 
you know, to, to go on an adventure in, in another world uh, was really appealing to me. And so I put in the effort to overcome the barrier, shall we say. So even though it probably was harder for me to learn to read, I was really motivated to put that work in. And so I did learn to read and learn to read at a high level. So that wasn't kind of flagging because that would probably be the main thing that would flag children um, but I was reading really well but my writing was not at the same level um, and it was things like fl flipping letters back to front sw switching letters in words um, and even though my reading was good if there were kind of um, words that looked similar to each other had maybe a similar shape um, then I would sometimes model those up um, and so those are the kinds of things that um, I, I was kind of hiding because, um, you know, I, I wanted to do what I was told. I was a very kind of um, eager to please child at school. So it wasn't so much that I was struggling academically, but those kind of markers mm -hmm. of having a particular area of difficulty were the things I think that probably flagged it for her. Mm, that's fascinating. So for my listeners, um, if you notice that either you or your child are struggling with some of those things that Anna mentioned, um, you mentioned about, you know, flipping letters around or mixing up letters in a word, struggling with reading, struggling with writing and spelling in particular, those are all um, kind of signs that you might want to look into seeing if your child might have dyslexia. And what is the process for being diagnosed as someone that has dyslexia? How would they officially get a diagnosis? Um, you, you might know the answer to this question better than me because uh, we're talking about something that happened uh, nearly 30 years ago. Uh, so I, I mean, I remember a very nice lady taking me into her office and asking me some things, I think, to test my working memory. So to recite lists of numbers, do some reading, um, that kind of thing. But you can you can tell your readers your listeners if it's changed since then yeah um so that is there are tests um that people can use to determine if someone has dyslexia so a great place to start would be identifying your concerns with your um, child's pediatrician or with your own primary care doctor and then they'll be able to refer you to specialists that can conduct those those tests to confirm whether or not you do have dyslexia um, but yeah, it is, it's, it's a very simple process and it is important for people to be able to understand whether or not, um, they have dyslexia, because if you don't know that you have something, it's kind of hard to, to deal with it or address it. If you're not aware that it's even something, um, an issue that you're having at that time. Um, so once we can identify what those issues are, then we're able to better, address those issues and come up with strategies that can help support ourselves and support our children um, in their in their learning. Um, and you mentioned though that that you were able to be diagnosed with dyslexia from the beginning, but you weren't diagnosed with ADHD at the time. So I'm wondering what was that process for you for being diagnosed with ADHD? How old were you? How did you come to find out that that was also um, you know something that you had as well? Sure. Um, so that was was when I was an adult. Um, it was actually I, I started working as a coach um, and I had some people with ADHD come to me and say, you know, we've heard that coaching is helpful for ADHD. This was before the pandemic when people were used to working face to face and there were no ADHD coaches in my area. So they, they kind of came to me and asked if I would be willing to to help them with this and and so I said sure that sounds exciting I'll go and do some research I love research um, and so I started reading and listening to all this stuff about ADHD and and the experiences of women in particular with ADHD and I was like this this is also normal though right like isn't everyone like this and then kind of gradually there's the, the penny drops um oh this is why I'm getting on with these women so well this is why it all makes sense okay I get it now um so then I I went to speak to my GP primary care doctor um and uh yeah went from there that's amazing and I'm I'm, I'm sorry that it took so long for you to be able to realize that, but I find that your experience is definitely not unique. Um, for some reason, it's like, I feel like we're very quick to label boys in particular um, as having ADHD or as having these other 
um, problems. Actually, I'm, I'm writing a book now called Toxic Teaching, and I recently just wrote a chapter about this very topic that with boys in particular, we're so quick to slap on this label to them of ADHD or opposition defiant disorder or these other labels. Um, and one, I think a lot of times we're kind of misrepresenting them, but then there's also to that flip side that, that there are girls that are struggling with these issues, but because it doesn't show up the same way as it does with boys. Um, I think a lot of times girls are, are not getting the support that they need just because it doesn't look like the way that it would necessarily with a boy. Um, I'm wondering if you found that to be true as well, if you've noticed kind of this disparity between boys that are experiencing ADHD versus girls um, and how you would describe maybe some of those differences to look for um, in yeah, boy um, that's experiencing it versus a girl. Yeah, I think I think the problem with the current kind of way of diagnosing children is it's based on is the kid a problem to the people around them? Are they disrupting the class? Are they making their teacher's life a pain? Yeah. Um, and actually, that only describes uh, one way of reacting to having ADHD, um, which is probably more common in boys, but there are boys who are being missed as well because they're not expressing um, their ADHD in those ways. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that that kind of easily distracted nature and it can be oh I get distracted and that makes me frustrated and then I start breaking things or yelling at people but it can just as easily be oh I get distracted and then I check out and I just start doodling in my workbook and I have no idea what's going on around me mm -hmm. um, that's less disruptive to the class but it's this it's probably the same underlying um, kind of mechanism mm. um, and I do notice that more commonly girls will sort of internalize their struggles and then it shows up in things like anxiety whereas boys are more likely again you know not not everybody but more likely to externalize that and then we get signs of aggression and anger which mm -hmm. it, because ADHD is, is kind of labeled as a um a behavioral disorder if, yeah. if you're behaving you don't get labeled with ADHD but there are people who you know are behaving but what's going on inside is maybe completely different to what's happening in the classroom. Mm. I'm wondering are there children that you think that are misbehaving that don't have ADHD? Um I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are. Um, I mean, I, I tend to subscribe to the view that kids want to do the right thing. And there's probably some kind of reason if they can't, you know, whether it's stuff going on at home that is just not affecting their ability to cope or, yeah. you know, some kind of thing. But yeah. kids want to do the right thing. If they're not, then before you start punishing or labeling them, you know, do some diagnostics. Why are they not able to do the right thing? That's absolutely brilliant advice and I, I couldn't agree with you more and um, it, it's so true like I think that we're very quick to label misbehavior um, and do exactly what you said we want to like punish them or um, you know do things like that before actually looking at the root cause of that misbehavior and getting curious about why they're acting the way that they might be acting um, and because sometimes it might be an issue with the child, but a lot of times it's, you know, it's not an issue with the child. A lot of times there is an issue with their environment or even things that we as adults that are doing that are contributing to those perceived negative behaviors um, or the environment that they're in, you know, the classroom environment that they're in that might be, um, you know, a toxic environment or whatever that is contributing to those behaviors. So um, that's wonderful advice to, to really look at that whole child and, um, not just be so quick to label them um, with any particular label, whether that be, oh, a, a bad kid or a misbehaving kid, or even labeling them as ADHD or any of these other kinds of um, labels per se, without really having like a full understanding of what is going on um, with that child. So thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, so what would you say then would be some of the signs? Again, we talked about signs for dyslexia. What are some signs that a parent might know that their child in, in particular is struggling with ADHD and is not just a random you know, behavior issue or something else? Like how would they know that it's ADHD that is the cause? 
Sure. Um, so being struggling to focus is one of the hallmarks. Um, but you've got to kind of, you've got to be curious. I like that word that you used to figure out if if that is what's happening. Um, so because struggling to focus can look different for different people um and and it and because it's it's a difference in focus it, people with adhd sometimes focus incredibly well if the task is engaging for them it's um but it's this pattern of different to usual focus so uh, struggling to start focusing getting easily distracted getting very frustrated when they're distracted um or focusing really intently for a very long time. Um, and of course, it's it depends on the age of the child because some of that behavior is normal at certain ages, but you're kind of comparing to what's normal for that age um, group. And then the other kind of big class of um, symptoms for ADHD is emotional regulation. Um, and this, you know, this can look like somebody who's acting out, somebody who gets angry very easily, but it can also be, um, you know, that, that quiet kid in the back of the class who is really well behaved at school and then gets home and they let it all out at home because home is where they feel safe. So teachers don't always have the full picture when it comes to emotional regulation because it's not just are they regulated during class? It's what is the impact on the child of maintaining that regulation? What's going on in the full the full picture? Wow. So it it seems like it can be very challenging to be able to kind of get that accurate diagnosis because it seems like it does show up in so many different ways for different children and with you know I guess processing things in different ways. Um, but I I like that you mentioned the aspect of emotional regulation because that is definitely um something that is that is challenging um do you have any particular i guess like tips or strategies that you have found useful in helping a child with emotional regulation get outside as much as possible as often <laughs> as possible that's my number one tip because really? one it's exercise and we all you know if we've got a lot of energy we've you know of whatever kind exercise helps but the other thing is sunlight stimulates serotonin which is actually the hormone that governs emotional regulation and it's what people with ADHD often don't have enough of mm. so get outside exercise fresh air sunlight it makes <laughs> a world of difference all right so Anna's top secret tip if you are struggling with emotional regulation get outside and get some sun that's wonderful, wonderful advice, Anna. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and so again, I want to, I know that you, you know, we've talked about children, um, but you specialize in working with adults that have ADHD, dyslexia, and autism. Um, how would you, I guess, what are some of the signs of, of you know, ADHD, autism, um, and dyslexia as an adult? Uh, sure. So um, ADHD as an adult um, often can can cause anxiety. So that's not exactly a sign, but it's sort of a flag to, to be thinking. Um, and, and often um, sort of feeling like I've never quite met my potential. Like if I could just focus, I would have achieved so much more. This sort of, it, it really can affect people's sense of self-confidence um, and, and self-esteem because yeah, there is this sort of, I, I, I understand the big picture. I know what I need to do and yet I can't make myself do it. Like get started and take the steps. Um, that can be really frustrating for people. Um, and again, I mean, the emotional regulation, it, it carries through into adulthood. Um, so it might be, you know, I get upset easily in professional situations where I don't want to or, or angry. Um, this um, idea of rejection sensitivity where people with ADHD can be very sensitive to perceived rejection um, and maybe even sort of socially isolate to protect themselves from the potential of rejection. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it is, it is complicated and it does vary um, a lot from person to person. So I would say if you're not, if you, if you're considering it, get an expert um, and remember that your GP is not an expert. So your GP can refer you on to an expert, but your GP shouldn't be dismissing you 
because your GP doesn't know whether you have ADHD or not. They don't have that training. All they really should do is refer you on to somebody who does. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is, that is very, very true. I can't tell you how many times that, you know, people have gone to a general practitioner and expressed concerns about things and they've kind of been dismissed a little bit. Um, but you're right. Like they're not the expert in a lot of these other issues that people might be dealing with. And because as adults, a lot of times it is more challenging to be able to identify a lot of these issues. Um, it is important that you can really be persistent in, in seeking that expert, um, help and the expert support. Um, and so what are some of the services that you provide for professional adults? If, you know, if there's anyone that's listening, that's struggling as an adult, as a professional, um, with any of these kind of neurodivergent, um, you know, processes like ADHD, autism, um, or dyslexia, what kind of support do you provide for people like that? Um, sure. So I provide um, either one-to-one coaching or um, I have courses that you can access and sort of self-study, um, go at your own pace. Um, something that I'm working on right now is a burnout recovery guide because you know people with ADHD and so on are at higher risk of burnout. And I think the whole world is pretty burned out right now. <laughs> like end of October 2021, I think a lot of people have had enough. Um, So I would love to um, share you the link to a quick survey to find out what people want to know about burnout and also then they can leave their email address there if they want to hear about this when it's kind of ready. That would be great. Um, So if you're listening and you are interested in either getting support from Anna with her coaching or any of those other um, services that she provides or this amazing course about burnout, um, I will make sure that I include those, those links for you in the description so that you can get connected with her. Um, and that is, she works specifically with adults. Um, so if you're an adult that is dealing with any of these issues, um, please feel free to talk with her so that you can get the support that you need and the coaching to be able to live a life that you absolutely love and to achieve your dreams and your passions, um, which is what we are all about here, helping people achieve their dreams and their passions. Um, And so I kind of want to shift gears a little bit. We've talked about you. We've talked about your story and your life. Um, We've talked about, you know, your business. I want to take a look at um, your schooling experience for your son. Because one of the other things that I really love hearing from other other people is just kind of the different ways to do school or to do learning um, and to do life. And so one of the things that you do with your son that I think is really unique is something called Flexi schooling. Um, and I had not heard that term before, but I'm wondering, can you share with us a little bit what is flexi schooling? Yeah, um, so flexi schooling is where you share um, the responsibility for educating your child with a school. So they have a, a named school that they're enrolled at, but they don't attend full time. Um, so in my case, uh, my son goes to school Monday to Thursday, and then I homeschool him on Fridays. But you know, you can, by arrangement with your school, make kind of any agreement that you can get the head teacher to say yes to pretty much Um, yeah and it's you know it it can be useful for anyone but I think it's really useful for um, families with children with additional needs um, because mainstream schooling is not set up for these kids and um, it's exhausting often for them to try and sort of fit into that mainstream schooling structure. Um, 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 I talked a little bit about one of the signs being kind of children who behave really well at school and then they come home and they, you know, can't keep it together anymore. And that was absolutely my experience with my son. He was doing what he was asked to do at school as much as he could and it was exhausting him and he was coming home and he was letting it all out Um, and we just found that week after week he kind of started more exhausted struggled more to get through the week Um, and so I I realized like this isn't this isn't working we need to change something Um, and what we landed on was he would go to school four days a week And then he would have three days at home to do that decompressing and that recovering. And that way he can start on Monday fresh. It's not getting worse week by week. Mm. Um, So that's 
really helpful for his mental health and for us as a family because when he was exhausted we couldn't really do anything at the weekend we had to be so careful not to you know burden him more and, and cause a problem for him but now we can do you know normal things at the weekend and not worry about how he's going to react so that's been really good for us as a family wow um, I feel like you touched on so much that I'm like, I want to ask you all these questions about this. Um, I just, I, I really appreciate you noticing that your child is in school struggling to kind of like putting forth all this effort to kind of hold it together. Um, and I noticed that that's something that not only, you know, students with special needs do that, but I've noticed that to some degree, all kids feel this need to kind of like behave a certain way in school um, because they're punished for experiencing anger or experiencing sadness. Like you can't just cry openly in your classroom, you know, because kids will make fun of you or you can't have this tantrum in the middle of the day. Um, and so all children really are kind of forced to suppress those perceived negative emotions in the classroom and they kind of hold it all together and then just like what you said when they get home you know this is their their safe place where they just let it all go and i think a lot of parents really get frustrated with that because it's like it's like the only aspect of their child that they really get to see is like the meltdown at the end of the day when it's like you know they're just they're they're letting it out it's like this volcano that's been kind of brewing and stewing and growing and then they come home and they just explode because exactly what you said not because they don't respect you or they don't you know care about you or you know anything like that but because you are the person that is their safe place that they feel safe to be able to express those emotions in your space and knowing that that you as their parent are going to love them no matter what you know no matter whatever tantrum that they may have no matter how loud they're crying or whatever um and and it is it is i feel like it's something that is that you know all children kind of experience that to some degree that um you know when we do suppress our emotions it's like they need that safe place where they can come and kind of let it all out um but it is important <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, just I think it's so important that parents know, like, it's not their fault. It's not a sign of bad parenting. If your child is behaving at school and then they come home and they let it all out, it's not because school is a great environment and you're failing as a parent. It's the opposite, right? It's because school is not safe and you are safe. So I know it's hard to deal with, but don't add any guilt on top of that hard because it absolutely is not a sign that you have done anything wrong. Thank you so much for saying that. I, you put it perfectly into words <laughs> what I wanted to say. You know, like I, I want to let parents know that if your child is having these meltdowns with you, it's not exactly what you said. It's not because you're a bad parent. It's not that you're doing a bad job or that you haven't taught them how to behave or whatever we think that means. Um, but exactly that, like you are your child's safe place. And as long as we can model that emotional regulation that you talked about as adults, um, we can add calm to their chaos, you know, um, and which I think is probably one of the biggest challenges as a parent, you know, like when you're seeing your kid melting down, sometimes it's easy for us to have our own little meltdown at the same time. And at least for me, I, I you know, struggle with that sometimes. Um, but being able to say like, okay, my child is not giving me a hard time. They're having a hard time and I can have grace for them and I can have grace for myself and just hold space for them to experience whatever they're experiencing, let it pass and then like restore the peace in the home. Um, but it, it definitely can be challenging. Um, and so I'm, well, first of all, where do you live? Cause I'm in the United States and I, I'm not familiar with anyone that does flexi schooling here. I could be wrong, um, but I'm, I'm wondering where you live and if your child's in like a public school or I guess how that process worked for you to allow us yeah. to have you homeschool for one day yeah um so I live in the UK um and it's it's not mainstream here it's not what I hadn't heard of it until I kind of needed it and, and posted and some parenting groups you know this is what's happening and I just think that my child 
would be so much better off if they were at home one day a week is that even possible um and was you know fortunate to be pointed in the right direction um but i believe that something similar does exist in the us um but again it's, it's just not kind of well known people, people don't know that they have this right um and it wasn't easy to get it agreed we actually had to move school because um the, the school that we were at uh both are um we call them state schools, so like normal schools funded by the government and taxation. So the, the school that we were at that didn't agree was, was a normal um, state school, and so is the school that we moved to because it's at the discretion of the headmaster. So you just have to kind wow. of put your case and negotiate. Wow. So even though he's in a public school, you're able to talk and kind of have that negotiation with, with him and they were able to approve that. That's awesome. I think in here, in, in the United States, they might call it like hybrid um, is something that I've heard before. I haven't heard the term flexi schooling, as I mentioned, but especially now with COVID, I feel like a lot of these, you know, out of the box thinking when it comes to school is being a lot more normalized. Um, because yeah. I think that one of the best things to come from COVID, I feel like, is that parents were able to see that their kids didn't have to be sitting in this building five days a week for seven hours a day in order to be able to learn. Um, I know in my case, we, you know, I taught special education at a high school level, and the students only had four classes a day. They were only in class for four hours. Um, and they, we actually had a four day a week schedule. So they only were on zoom classes, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. So they were off every Wednesday and, you know, they were able to learn, um, and they were able to grow. And so I, I think that is one of the, you know, the big things is that, you know, we're, I think we're moving away from that traditional idea of like, you can only learn what you need to learn if you're sitting in this building five days a week for seven hours a day. Um, and so it, it's it's wonderful that you were kind of able to start thinking outside of that box and advocating for your child for what you thought was best for him and for his learning. Um, I'm wondering, had you thought about homeschooling full time or are you know how did you come up with just the one day a week? Yeah, um, so I, I definitely thought about it um, and I experienced it over lockdown, right? Um, so we had a period where schools were just shut, there were no lessons, maybe they would send home some stuff, but you know, they weren't going to check if you'd done it or not, especially at primary school. Um, and what I learned about myself was I do not want to be a full time homeschool mom. That is a huge commitment. And I, you know, I take my hats off to those uh, people who have made that commitment to their, their child and their family. But for me, I wanted to avoid that if I could. Um, and I, I know that some um, families of children with special needs end up forced into that route because. They, they don't see any alternatives and things get so bad that they feel like to, to look after their child, they have to take their child out of school. Yeah, um, yeah so for me, this is like the, the compromise where I hope that by homeschooling him one day a week, he will be fine emotionally to stay in school and I won't have to become a full-time homeschool mom. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, there are definitely different types of ways to homeschool, and I'm not sure what your, I guess, what your experience was um, with homeschooling, but I, I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate is that, um, you know, we're able to figure out what works best for us. You know, like everyone can kind of figure out what is the best educational environment for their child, what's the best scenario, not only for them, but also for us as adults and finding kind of what works not only for our kids, but also for us um, as the parent. And um, yeah, I know a lot of people when they first think about homeschooling, um, it can feel overwhelming to feel like you have that responsibility of like teaching, you know, all these different subjects and, um, and all like the time and lesson planning and all those other things, um, which is actually one of the reasons why we chose to do unschooling, which is a little bit different style of homeschooling. I'm not sure. Are you familiar with unschooling? Yeah, I've come across it more sort of freedom and, and less structure yeah. than regular homeschooling. Yeah. yeah, so we do, um, we do unschooling and that has definitely been really helpful for me because I think I, I resonated with that feeling of feeling stressed and overwhelmed with the idea of a traditional homeschool environment of like, okay, I'm going to force you to sit down and learn all these different subjects all day long. And it was just kind of a miserable experience. Um, but yeah, so it's, it, it is important. And I appreciate that you, 
you know, bring up that fact that we can find what works for us. And if you're trying something and it's not working either for you or for your child, you are always free to try something else. Um, and there are a lot of even unschoolers that, that do attend school, um, which is interesting, but, um, but there are unschoolers that go to school because it is something that they're choosing. And, um, and so it's, you know, everyone is free to kind of find what, what works for them. And I'm really happy for you and for your family that it seems like you found something that's working, um, working for both of you guys, or well, I guess all of you as a collective family. So that's wonderful. Um, what kinds of things, well, you mentioned that a lot of, you've noticed that a lot of other families that have students that have special needs, um, end up taking their children out of school because they're having such a hard time in school. Um, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about what are some of those issues that you've observed that students with special needs have in the schooling system and whether or not you feel like that has changed being in a homeschool environment or if you think that those issues are just kind of carrying over into the homeschool environment as well. Uh, yeah, I think it's um, anxiety and even trauma from just being forced to behave in a very controlled, regimented way each day, every day when that, that doesn't work for every individual. Mm. Um, certainly in the UK at the moment, schools are in a place where they are very rigid um, and that there isn't really much space for individual needs. Mm. Um, and it, it, it just fails certain students uh, which is is really sad to see but yeah it can lead to to school refusal whether the anxiety or trauma associated with school is just so great that the student refuses to go um, and that's you know that's obviously a very sad situation for everyone and you know I think something that the, the school system should be paying more attention to really. Yeah I, I agree um, I, I definitely think that there's a lot of things that happen within the school system that that does it causes a lot of trauma and actually that's what my entire book is about it's called toxic teaching and um, the subtitle is exposing the cycles of abuse in the schooling system and and that was exactly why I wrote this book because I was observing as a teacher that there were so many different things that were happening either intentionally or unintentionally that were causing trauma to students um, but in particular, I noticed that my students with special needs um, were particularly impacted by these different kinds of systems that you mentioned, like that force and the control and the lack of freedom and individuality um, that we see in the public school system. And um, for the people that you perhaps you know that also have children that, um, that have special needs that have left the schooling system, do you find that that has, that those issues have gone away um, or gotten better in a homeschooling environment? Or what does that look like for them after they've left the schooling system? Yeah, I think, I think if they, if the students feel confident that they don't have to go back, then, then, then that's normally really kind of helps them heal, basically. Um, and so I think the sort of best practice is, once you've got to that point is a period of unschooling to just let all of that demand go and kind of reset um, and then once you've kind of had that recovery time to problem solve what what should schooling look like now is it homeschooling is it you know what is it um, I think what's what's not so kind is this kind of constant cycle of right you're just about well enough to go into school so back you go mm. oh after two days you can't cope anymore hit home again you know that kind of to and fro I think there has to be enough time for recovery absolutely I think that's a great way to put it to giving them enough time for recovery and actually um, we refer to that process of exactly what you said of recovering from the trauma of of school um as de-schooling and it is it's a it's a process where we do exactly what you mentioned where you kind of decompress you allow yourself that freedom to basically live as though school doesn't exist 
And um, what I recommend and what I've seen is that um, most people should do one month of de-schooling for every year that they've been in school. Um, so if you're listening and your child has been in school um, and they're in second grade, let's say, so they've gone to kindergarten and first grade and now they're in second grade, that would take them two, maybe two and a half months of de-schooling um, before you can kind of reevaluate and figure out, okay, what do we want our schooling process to look like? So really giving your child that space to unlearn a lot of these ideas that they have or that they've been taught about this is what learning is or this is what learning is supposed to look like. And that de-schooling process is not just for our, our children, it's also for us, which is, I think that's the harder part. Um, I have a master's degree and so that meant I needed to de-school for like two years. Um, so I was de-schooling for a long time. And I still feel like I'm de-schooling and having to unlearn a lot of these ideas that I had about learning and about um, education in general. And so it is, it is a very, very important process. Um, but in particular, if your child has experienced any sort of trauma within the school system, it's important that we don't just pull them out of the school system and then kind of try to do school again at home. It is really important that you can give them that time and that space to decompress um, figure out who they are, figure out what they what they like, what they enjoy, and kind of give them that space to basically live as though school kind of doesn't exist for that time and really just focus that time on connecting with your child, having them connect with themselves um, and with other things and people that they love. Um, so that is, thank you very much for, for reminding me of that and bringing that back up again. Um, and I know that um, before we started recording, we actually were talking about the fact that, um, you know, a lot of times when when our children are having these issues with special needs, whether that be, you know, dyslexia um, or ADHD, a lot of times you said that that's something that's genetic. Um, so that's something that kind of, I guess, like is passed down um, to our children. And so I'm, I'm wondering, um, does, is your child also experiencing ADHD and dyslexia like you are? Um, probably we're still awaiting formal diagnoses. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something I see a lot because um, often adults come to me and they've, they realize that they have something like ADHD because their child has been diagnosed. And as they're kind of going through the process with their child, they're sitting there in the office, listening to all of these questions being like, but I, I do that. I'm like, oh, they get that from me. I do. Isn't this normal? My family all does this. Um, and that, that can be the moment when the, the penny drops sometimes for the parent. Mm. Um, what would you say has been the most challenging aspect of parenting a child that might have ADHD or dyslexia um, also as a parent that has those issues of um, you know ADHD and dyslexia? Yeah um, it's I think it was organization um, especially when when they were really young and I, I didn't realize I had ADHD. I remember just when I had a newborn just trying to get out of the house and just being overwhelmed by the number of steps involved in like putting together a bag with a snack and a drink and a change of clothes and just all of the stuff that you have to do to get out of the house with a baby um yeah. <laughs> really overwhelming um and then there is also that kind of that boredom that comes in with ADHD so um you know I I don't like to do the things that babies like to do because they're not exciting for me as an adult mm -hmm. um but with with my uh, my child he he really wanted a lot of that adult attention because he wasn't able to sort of focus and get interest from his surroundings he really needed that like intense hands-on kind of playing and entertaining mm -hmm. and I'm like we've sung this song twice already I'm bored now. <laughs> um so that was definitely a challenge I, I can relate. Sometimes I'm like, I don't really want to play dolls or <laughs> Barbies for the hundredth time. Um, but it does, it, it really requires a lot of effort to be able to, um, you know, to engage with a lot of these things as a parent that for us may not be as exciting or um, whatever. Do you have any strategies for overcoming someone that might be experiencing that, that they're like, okay, my kid wants to, you know, play these things and I'm not really into that. Like, what strategies do you have for connecting with a child that might have special needs? 
Sure. Um, I mean, I think stories are great because they can be interesting for all ages. Um, sometimes it's about setting a timer so that you know that you're not there forever. So it can be easier. And I, I really like really visual timers. So like a sand timer that runs for 10 minutes then you can be like, right, OK, I'm going to build blocks and watch you knock them down and then build them up again and watch you knock them down but I can only do it for 10 minutes because then I will just be fed up and we've got to do something else um so it's it's balancing your needs with their needs you know you've got to you've got to acknowledge what your needs are because if you push yourself too far you will end up resentful uh, and exhausted but you know that their, their needs matter too so it's then it's that problem solving what are my needs what are their needs as the adult, how am I going to manage those things? I love that idea for this sand timer. I think that's such a powerful tool, not just for, for us, but also for our children. I feel like a lot of times children struggle with understanding the concept of, of time, you know, it really is an abstract idea, but being able to have those visual representations for them um, of that sand timer, that's something that they can see and they know, okay, the time is running out when all the sand gets to the bottom, you know, mom or dad is going to go do X, Y, Z. Um, but they know that they have you for that, you know, set focused amount of time, um, which is so, so important to be able to have that quality time, one-on-one -on -one time with them. Um, do you have any other strategies that you could share to help parents support children with special needs? Um, anything that you've done that you found has been helpful for you and your family? I mean, I, so figuring out what the problem is and then kind of using your, your problem solving skills. So, you know, if you are an adult out there with ADHD or you think you might have, the good news is you're probably really good at problem solving. Um, so once you've identified specifically what the issue is, you know, is it that your child is struggling to learn to read? Right. Go and research programs to help them um, and really kind of use your creativity, you know, different mediums, whatever that is. Mm. But in order to kind of unlock that problem solving ability, you've got to get clear on what the problem is and specific. So a kind of general sense of life is too hard and I can't do this doesn't unlock your problem solving. But if you get down to, okay, you know, mealtimes always cause tantrums, especially when we try and eat whatever it is, right now you can engage your problem solving skills and figure out a way around that. That is brilliant. Being specific about what the specific issue is, um, that you're so right. We can't just solve this problem of, oh, life is hard. Like we need a, a very specific, like in this moment or at this time of day, in this situation, I struggle. And then we can look for tools to support us in that specific moment. Um, and I, I wanted to also share, um, you know, you've been talking about different things that we can do. Um, I wanted to share two with my audience. If, if I haven't had a chance to share with you yet, uh, I recently started launching a course called a reading and typing course. And I designed this course specifically with students that had, um, dyslexia in mind, um, because I found that exactly what you mentioned, a lot of students with dyslexia struggle with reading, uh, with reading, they struggle with spelling and spelling patterns, and in particular with handwriting with a pencil. Um, but I found that when my students would type, they did uh, so much better because their brain was making these new connections to the letters on the keyboard. And so by teaching touch typing has helped I mean, that has helped incredibly with my students that had dyslexia because they're connecting the letters and the spelling patterns to their fingers. And so, um, and this program has not only been helpful for my students with dyslexia, I found that this has been helpful for people of all ages. In fact, I have another guy now who um, actually he's almost 70 years old and he's taking this course. And so he's learning to type as a guy who's retiring um, and he owns his own business. And so he's taking this course in order to also learn how to type. And um, so that has been incredible for him. And I would love to be able to share that too with your audience, Anna, because I know you deal with professionals. Um, and so being able to learn how to type in a systematic and phonetic way that can help support um, your learning of spelling patterns and phonics and things like that, um, it is it is truly an incredible program for kids of all ages, whether you're six, I would recommend maybe like five or six years old and then older. 
Um, so I will make sure that I include the link for that. And I'm actually going to be offering a special um, a buy one month, get one month free offer for Black Friday. So um, make sure that you stay tuned for that. And I will make sure that I share that with you guys. Um, and I'll share that with you as well, Anna. So you can feel free to share that course as a way to support your listeners as well and your, your audience as well. Um, and for regarding my audience, how can people in my audience connect with you and the work that you're doing? Sure. Um, so I will send you a link to um, a free workbook that I have on staying calm amid criticism, because that's that sort of the emotional regulation and that rejection sensitivity that, you know, it affects adults as much as children, we can find really hard. Um, so, you know, that that's really helpful. Um, if you are a parent who is dealing with big feelings in your child and big feelings in yourself at the same time. Um, I have a, a product for you, which is a, a walking sensory guided meditation. Mm. A lot of ADHDers have bad experiences of meditation because it's taught in a, in a way that makes us feel like we're broken because our mind doesn't go perfectly quiet like a tranquil lake. I promise you this is not that. This is a, a meditation that even people who don't get on traditional meditation really like because there is none of that guilt um, and it is you can move around you don't have to sit still uh, and it but it will really help you to tap into your body and that that kind of uh, that will help your emotional regulation and your ability to contain your children's feelings as well mm. That sounds incredible. I'm really excited to check that out to myself. So thank you so much for sharing both of those things with us. And I will, again, make sure that I include those links in the show notes so that you can have access to those awesome freebies from Anna. Um, thank you so very much, Anna, for sharing not just those freebies, but also your experience, your advice, your wisdom, a little bit about your story um, with me and with my audience today. And I hope um, for those of you that are listening, that this episode has been as much of a blessing for you as it has been for me. Um, remember that there are new episodes of the Peaceful World Schooling podcast that are released every single Tuesday. So make sure that you subscribe so that you will not miss out on a single episode. And if you would like to support me in the work that I'm doing, please make sure that you check out the links in the description. Um, and you can also donate on my website, www.peacefulworldschoolers.com. Um, and I'll also include all of Anna's links um, as well. If you would like to connect with her, she is on, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So I will have all those links for you guys so you can get connected with Anna and the incredible work that she is doing. So thank you so much, Anna. And um, thank you to those of you who joined us today. I hope that your day is as wonderful as you are. And I'll see you next Tuesday. Join us next Tuesday on the Peaceful World Schooling Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Harders. And I hope that your day is as wonderful as you are. If you like this video, please make sure you subscribe and click the bell so you will not miss out on a single episode.